there are times when you just need a quiet night to just think about how good God is. And um, I always love Sunday nights here because in some ways they're similar to Sunday morning, but it's just a different place on Sunday nights. And uh, Mark, go sit with your wife. You, you go, just go sit with your wife. You, it'll make her feel better, and she might make me a cake or something for doing that. So. I'm working on brownie points tonight, folks. I'm just telling you that right now. I want us to talk about the people that God uses in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. And quite honestly, after you read a great passage like the passage on Christ, which is the, probably the premier passage on the deity of Christ in all the New Testament, and, and you see that passage about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, you, you see that little heading that the uh, editors have added to the Bible because there are no headings in the original manuscript. But you see that and says, Timothy and Epaphroditus say, well, this is going to be boring. And it's almost tempting to skip over that looking for the next good thing and it would be a tragedy for us to do that I think it's very important for us to understand biographies one of my uh, favorite uh, shows is to watch biography shows on people to, to learn things about them I love to read biographies I have uh, dozens of shelves of biographies of all kind uh, military leaders and great believers, and it's amazing the differences in them, but especially in Christian biographies, to see the different kinds of people that God used. Uh, when you think about Martin Luther, the, the bold, strong-willed German who stood up to the Catholic Church and said, it is by grace through faith that we are saved. To the risk of his own life, he did that. John Knox was called the thundering Scotsman. Knox would stand outside of Mary, Queen of Scots' castle and call her a harlot as she had walked down to her bathhouse and call her to repent. When Knox was on a slave ship for a few years because of his stand for Christ, he, uh, they put an image of the Virgin Mary in front of him and asked him if he believed that the Virgin Mary was equal to Christ. And He took the image and threw it overboard and said, let's see if she can walk on water. D.L. Moody's favorite word was ain't. He had a sixth grade education, never ordained in the ministry, and he was the Billy Graham of his time. C.H. Spurgeon preached his first sermon when he was 16 years old. By the time Spurgeon was 22 years old, he was preaching to 10,000 people every Sunday and was the best-known, most famous preacher in all the world. He is still considered the prince of preachers, and he died when he was 57. And much of his later life, he couldn't even preach because he had such severe gout, and he would have to leave and go to different climates to try to get relief from his physical ailments that he had. And yet he was a prince of preachers. Grady Wilson was once asked why God used Billy Graham, and he said, God is using Billy Graham because he found a man he can trust. I love what Bishop Ryle says, a zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing, 
He sees only one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up for one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or dies, or whether he has health or sickness, whether he is rich or poor, whether he pleases man or gives offense, whether he is thought wise or thought foolish, whether he gets honor or gets shame, for all this the man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. God uses a variety of people. Abraham was a nomad. David was a king. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was an intellectual scholar. You read the Bible and he uses shepherds and soldiers and men and women and young and old and rich and poor and Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people. We say around here often that we believe we're looking for faithful people and available people and teachable people. Well, when you look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, you find those two kind of men, the kind of men that God can use and the kind of people that God can use. So I want to begin reading in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else. Now you think about the Apostle Paul saying this about somebody. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because of you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him along with this more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. And hold men like him in high regard, <clears throat> because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. I want to know that when my life ends, it has mattered for God. And that's all that really matters as that when life is over for us, it has mattered to God what we have done to advance His glory. Roger Breland said when he received the award in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame, he was in the same group with the Oak Ridge Boys who haven't done a gospel record in 25 years and got up at their acceptance speech and said, well, we've been thinking about doing another gospel record. Of course, they've been singing in nightclubs, bars, and honky-tonks for God knows how long. Of course, they throw in a gospel song, so that makes them still a gospel group. That's a joke. And it's a joke that they were honored in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame because they have long since forsaken their roots. But Roger got up, and everybody was just fawning all over the Oak Ridge Boys. 
And he said, you know, we're all there in Texas and everything. He said, they thought I was the maitre d'. He said, not anybody there knew who I was. And he said, I got up to make my acceptance speech, and God spoke to my heart. And he said, Roger, I didn't call you to be famous. I called you to be faithful. And you know, God doesn't call us to be famous. He just calls us to be faithful. Most of us will never be known outside of our circle of friends and our family and our small sphere of influence. But we're still supposed to be faithful. Faithful to the things of God. And this is Timothy and Epaphroditus. There are two men who we read in the Scripture were, were faithful to the things of God. And Paul is finished writing about shining light lights and holding fast the Word in verses 15 and 16. And all of a sudden, these two examples jump out. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, Timothy was compassionate. He says in verse 25, Epaphroditus was a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier. He says in verse 29, hold men like him in high regard. That word hold means to continue to hold. Don't stop holding men like him in high regard. Men who have these characteristics, men who have this kind of quality in their lives, don't quit holding them in high regard. The word high regard means esteem or honor or value. <clears throat> hold your place in Philippians and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because as a loss of respect for presidents and congressmen and senators and judges and police officers and firemen and service workers and other people is on the decline in America, so is the respect for the office of the pastor. And yet Paul gives us a clear warning here and a clear encouragement he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, the passage that we're a little more familiar with, Hebrews 13 and verse 17, if you'd turn there for a moment, because I think this is important that at least three times, and there are some other references, but at least three times God says that we're to hold these people in high regard. We're to esteem them very highly. And then in chapter 13 of Hebrews and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for who? Who? You. You see, if, if we don't hold those who have charge over us in high esteem, it's not unprofitable for the pastor or the staff member. It's unprofitable for the church member. That's what Paul's saying. Now, I, I believe the office is worthy of respect. And whether it's a president you agree with or disagree with, his office is worthy of respect. And if I were to be called to the White House by any president, I, I would treat that president with respect because of his office, even if I didn't agree with one policy he had. His office demands it. And the things that are going on in our country that show total disrespect, when disrespect for authority breaks down, every area of authority begins to break down. 
We already have it for police officers. We already have it for other people that are in leadership positions. And I think it's time for us as a society to restore respect for those who are in authority. That's just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. First of all, there's a life of purpose. F.B. Meyer said at age 82, I have but one ambition in life, and that is to be an errand boy for Jesus Christ. Horatius Bonar said, You can tell when a Christian is growing in proportion to his growth in grace. He will elevate his master, talk less of what he himself is doing, and become smaller and smaller in his own esteem until, like the morning star, he faded before the rising sun. A life of purpose. First, we need mentors like Paul. Timothy was Paul's understudy. He was always going to be second fiddle. Oh, you're, you're Paul's guy. He was always going to be second fiddle. And yet Timothy seemed to be content with that. It is hard to be content with being second chair in the orchestra. But Timothy was. He knew that Paul was the great apostle. He knew that he did not have the gifts that he had. But Paul saw something in Timothy, and he mentored him, and he trained him, and he discipled them. And we must never underestimate the value of mentoring. I think it is something that we're losing in our culture. In fact, there's a great book that Howard Hendricks has written called Iron Sharpens Iron. And, and men, it's a good book for you to read in mentoring your sons. It's a good book for an older man to read in mentoring a younger man. And it's a good book for us to even apply to older ladies mentoring younger ladies. There's a real role in mentoring ministry in taking somebody along, helping them through their mistakes, helping them through their problems, picking them up when they blow it, and taking them down a path where they can become more of what God intended them to be because we bring them along. Paul was this person who invested in Timothy, and he, he taught Timothy. And I'm afraid the church doesn't do a good job with this today. I don't think we do a great job in mentoring and in bringing somebody alongside and training them where they can take the place. It's a lot easier for us to say, well, I'll just do it myself. But we rob other people of the joy of learning ministry when we don't mentor somebody else. You know, I, I hate to think what my life would have been like if Vance Havner hadn't done that to me. I mean, I was nobody to him. I would think what my life would have been like if Ron Dunn hadn't picked up that mantle and invested in me for almost 20 years and talked to me and, and helped me because I know the story of the man who helped Ron. I have the notes on, on his handwritten notes of the man, J.P. Macbeth, who, who taught Ron how to preach, who would go to Ron's house and sit at his kitchen table and say, now, Ron, let's look at this passage. I've got a file this thick of all those notes that that man wrote in the 1950s, teaching Ron Dunn how to preach. Somebody invested in Ron. Ron invested in me. It's my responsibility to invest in others. That's why we spend money to do the Bridge Builders Conference for pastors in our area because it's my responsibility to invest in other men in ministry to help them learn some things that I never got to learn or that I did learn and it can be a blessing to them. You see, it would be very easy for me to take a relationship with a Ron Dunn or a Warren Wiersbe and say, you know, I'm just going to hold this to myself. I'm not going to let anybody else be a part of it and just kind of hoard it. And that would also be very carnal. It's a lot better to say we had a chance this past year 
to invest in 50 pastors across denominational lines, across racial lines, and teaching them for a day how to use the Word of God in helping people with their problems. It was a wonderful day. It was a great opportunity for us to invest and to teach people. And so, you know, when I think about this Paul-Timothy relationship, let me, let me just, and th- this is not an o- official mentoring relationship, but when I think about the Paul-Timothy relationship, I always think that when Paul needed somebody to go fix something, he sent Timothy. And, you know, really, God has given me that kind of staff. That the staff can go in my place in so many situations and minister to people and serve people and pray with people and help people, and it's not a step down. There, there are some folks that think if the pastor hasn't prayed over my ingrown toenail, it hasn't been prayed over. But the truth of the matter is, God doesn't view my prayers with any higher esteem than he does any staff member or any deacon or any Sunday school teacher in this church. I don't have any greater access to God than any of you. God doesn't say, oh, Michael's praying. Everybody stop. Let's let's get this thing answered. You see, one of the greatest characteristics of a maturing church is to accept ministry from somebody else besides one person because ministry is not about lone rangers. It's not about, oh, I need brother so-and-so, and and if brother so-and-so doesn't come, I haven't been ministered to. No, what you did is you depended on brother so-and-so, and and you didn't depend on the Lord. And when brother so-and-so's dead, your faith is gone. You see, our faith is not in God's servants. Our faith is in the God that his servants represent. And if we get that confused, we're going to be disappointed. And one of the things I'm grateful for, that every day of the week, we have a staff member at the hospital. When a person has a death in a family, we do everything we can to have a staff member there within 30 minutes of when that death has happened in their family. And oftentimes, it's somebody who is there and can get right to it. We have staff on call. We have people on call. Why? Because we believe that it's important to minister to people, and sometimes it can't be me. But it doesn't mean that ministry is not important. So it's extended out to 12 or 14 people on this church staff. And and I applaud them and I honor them and I'm grateful for them because in many ways they're my Timothys. They're the people that I've entrusted to represent me in areas where I can't be because I can't be everywhere. And I can't do everything. And quite honestly, I can't study to preach like the Word tells me that I'm supposed to study to preach and do everything else. I'm not that smart, I'm getting older, it takes me longer, and I need the help. Okay? Now, let's move on. Let me, let's just look at some verses here about Timothy. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 16, and 1 Thessalonians 3. And let's do this quickly because the ice cream's going to melt if y'all don't listen quicker. I'm going at the pace you're going with me right now, so if you, if, if you want to get it before it all melts and becomes syrup, then we've we'll, we got to keep moving. All right, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 17. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. 
So Timothy comes to remind them about what Paul has said. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10. Then we'll go to 1 Thessalonians again. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 10. Now remember, Corinth was a troubled church. I mean, it was like walking into a beehive. And Paul says in chapter 16 and verse 10, Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am, so let no one despise him. Now that's a good word for people who think, well, you know, the guy's just a staff member. Hey, don't despise a staff member. They're called of God to serve in that position. They're called by this church to serve in that position. You honor them as if they're the person that's in charge because they are at that moment. So he says, don't despise them. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. And it's amazing that in 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, he says almost identically what he says about Epaphroditus in the book of Philippians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. First of all, we need mentors like Paul who invest in men like Timothy. Secondly, we need to die to our own agendas. Verse 20, For I have no one else of kindred spirit. There's nobody like him. That word means to be like-minded or twin-souled. It is a word that says two souls sharing the same center or two minds that think is one. Paul said, Timothy is my son, my child in the ministry. He thinks like I think. He does what I, what I would do. He, he acts like I would act in that situation. He, he is so in sync with the way that I think that he doesn't even have to ask me what I would say in that situation. He knows it. This is the kind of relationship that, that Paul had with, with Timothy. I, Paul and Timothy shared the same heart. I, I mean, there was just a, a blending of spirits there that it was uncanny that Paul and Timothy would be on the same page with one another. They didn't have to send memos or emails. When Timothy would be sent on a trip, he knew what Paul would say if he was there. And so he did it. I, I still remember Manley and Ron, Manley Beasley and Ron Dunn, both saying to me that when they preached Bible conferences during the 70s and 80s and did a lot of Bible conferences together, probably 10 or 15 a year, I guess, they could be sitting on opposite sides of the auditorium and know exactly what the other one was going to say. In fact, Ron said, it got to be so uncanny that I knew what Manley was going to preach and he never told me. I would know by the flow of the service, I would know by what was happening in the room exactly what sermon Manley was going to preach, and Manley knew what sermon I was going to preach. He said, and I knew if he was going to preach this and God was going to lead me to do this. And he said, we just were, it was just seamless. It was just, you know, and I never forget after Manley died, I asked Ron, I said, Ron, is there anybody you'd ever like to do a Bible conference with again? He said, yeah, I'd like to do one with Manley, but I don't think you can make that happen. You see, I, I understand what it means to have a kindred spirit with somebody. And there are some people that I have a kindred spirit with that, that I mean, I know what they're thinking before it ever comes out of their mouth. I, I know what they're feeling. They know me. They, don't, they can tell in my voice where I am and what's going on. 
I mean, I have that with Roger Breland. I have that with Gary Miller. I have that with some other people that are in my life. I, I, can, I can sense that with Bill Stafford now. That I, I know where he's going to go. I know what he's going to do. And Paul says, I had this kind of relationship. Why? Because you have to quit worrying about what you're going to do and start thinking about now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make this? It's dying to our own agendas. Let's look at the surrendered life in verse 21. Paul talks in verse 21 about people who had not died to themselves, and it's such a stark contrast. He had mentioned these in chapter 1 and verses 15 and 17 about people who had selfish agendas and seek after their own interests. And the present tense indicates this is always going to be a problem. Listen, folks, nothing's changed since the first century. There were people who had their own agenda in the church in the first century, and there are people who have their own agenda in the church today. Nothing has changed. And so Paul says, here, here are these people, and, and by the way, every Christian is either living in Philippians 1.21 or Philippians 2.21. Philippians 1.21 says, for me to live is Christ. Philippians 2.21 says they seek after their own interests. One of those two verses is our life story. We either for us to live is Christ or we seek after our own interests. There's really not any in between because Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And so if we're going to look at our lives and what our true life story is, it's either that verse in chapter 1 or chapter 2 in verse 21. It's one of those. Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you have the R.G. Lee quote in your notes? Right after this, is there an R.G. Lee quote in your notes? There is? Okay, then I'm not going to read it. Let's go on. An available life. An available life. Verse 22 and verse 25. Now, I I want you to see what happens here. Paul uh, sent Timothy. Now it's time to send Epaphroditus. Paul had sent Timothy. Now he's sending Epaphroditus. Timothy is a servant. And as a servant, he was available. By the way, Timothy's name is used 20 times in the New Testament and not one reference to him being unfaithful. Twenty times Paul mentions his name. Can't say that about Demas. He can't say that about some other. Can't even say that about Simon Peter. But you can say it about Timothy. You see, if we were given a choice to come here, Timothy preach or Paul preach, some people would stay away because, oh, it's just Timothy. Oh, if Peter came, man, he, maybe he's going to tell the story about walking on the water. But, you know, Timothy denied his Lord to a slave girl at a fire. Peter denied the Lord, but here's Timothy. He's faithful. Never one time is he unfaithful in all of Scripture. That says something about his character. That says something about his integrity. And here's Epaphroditus who was their messenger from the church at Philippi, and and now he's being sent back to them. By the way, he was willing to risk his life to go see Paul in prison because in, in that time, if you were a friend of a prisoner, you could also be taken captive. So to even visit a jail would put your life in peril that you would also be imprisoned as a friend of a criminal. 
And so Timothy goes to visit him, and he's only mentioned two times in the Bible, and both times are in the book of Philippians. You say, well, you know, that's not much. Well, your name's not in the Bible two times. Billy Graham's name's not in the Bible. Martin Luther's name's not in the Bible. I mean, just, just go down the history of Christianity. Epaphroditus must have been somebody for God to say, let's take up valuable ink in an inerrant word and let's talk about somebody that people need to know about in 2004. Let's bring up Epaphroditus. And here's a man who is faithful and he gives the characteristics of his life. First of all, he says, he's my brother. He's my brother, my spiritual brother. I mean, there was a bond there with Epaphroditus that was like the bond of a brother. By the way, some of you understand what I'm about to say. You can have physical brothers and sisters and not be as close to them as you are to some brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? I mean, there can be some people that you've just gotten to know in church that you are a lot closer to and have a more of a kindred spirit with than you do with own members of your family. He says, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker. And what does a fellow worker do? A fellow worker declares the faith. And he says, here's a man who's a fellow worker. Now, remember John Mark, he bailed out on the first missionary journey because the work was too hard. But Paul says, Epaphroditus is not afraid to work. Now, now I don't want to chase this rabbit long, but I, I, am, I am puzzled by what's happening in our church culture today of being, people being in and out of ministries. I'm in this, do this for six months, I do that for six months, I do it for a year, I take a year off. I do it for two years, I take six months off. I, that puzzles me because I, I, just, I guess I'm just an old fogey, but when I grew up, the people that taught in the youth ministry when I was in fourth grade were teaching in youth ministry when I was in college. I mean, they just stayed with it. You know, and the people that sang in the choir always sang in the choir. They weren't in and out. And I mean, life was up and down, and every, their life was just as chaotic and just as crazy. But it wasn't like, oh, they're here today and gone tomorrow. Oh, they're back in. Oh, they're out. Oh, they're back in. Oh, they're out. Oh, they're back in. Oh, they're out. And you never knew. You knew where people were. There was a faithfulness that we don't have in the church today. I mean, when I went to Sagamore Hill Baptist Church, the last church I served in youth ministry, there was a man there named Howard Cleaver. Howard had one eye and the worst toupee God ever gave a man to wear. And I had 15 years experience in youth ministry and Howard Cleaver was the 10th grade director. And I'll never forget my first conversation with Howard Cleaver. Here was a man who was 65 years old and he went with me on his 47th consecutive youth camp 47 years never missed a youth camp never and I want to tell you youth ministers came and went and Howard Cleaver was there Jim Nash is the same way at Roswell Street he's been the director of the senior department for what 25 years 25 years Jim Nash has been the director of the seniors at Roswell Street I can tell you right now what Jim Nash is doing he had a routine. He did the same thing with seniors every year. Dave Irby was the director until he moved away from Roswell Street for over 30 years of the 10th grade department. 
Tom Holley was the director of the ninth grade department for 20 years. Uh, Bob Anders was the director of the 11th grade department for 12 or 15 years. Those people got in there and they stayed with it. And some of those people are still serving in their 60s and 70s. They're still at it. You say, what in the world is Jim Nash, a retired professional baseball player who's got bad knees and gets around like he's hobbling all the time, what's he got to do with seniors? He's got to everything to do with them. He loves them. It's his passion. You never had to say, well, Jim, you going to be here this summer? Are you going to check out for a while? I'm here. Never had to say that about Howard Cleaver. I mean, Howard Cleaver would go there at 65 years of age. I'm, I'm camping here for a minute. He'd go there at 65 years of age and sleep in an unair conditioned cabin with roaches everywhere, with 10th grade boys crawling all over the place, trying to get out the windows, trying to break the rules, and here's Howard Cleaver. He's just staying with the stuff. You know what? That church has long since forgotten that I was there. But when Howard Cleaver dies, there's going to be a big funeral. Because those are the kind of people that make a church. It's not hopping from this to that to the other. It's the people that stay there and build and nurture and develop. Are y'all okay here? I mean, it's the folks that you know that you can count on that are going to be there through thick and thin and we don't have that culture anymore in any church in America that I know anything about. And I think it's something we've got to recapture. That I'm going to find where God wants me to serve, and until God takes me home or changes my calling, I'm going to be there. doesn't matter who the staff member is serving there. It doesn't matter what the philosophy is. I'm going to be there because I've bought into the fact that this is what God wants me to do. And so there's a consistency and there's something to look forward to. You know, I, I can still remember, I'm just going to share one more Jim Nash story. This is, they're doing a big celebration for him, aren't they? Because I sent a letter about that. And, and uh, he still owes me money for something. But I, uh, Jim Nash would come down to the church office after opening assembly. And he would call. Now, Sunday school teachers, listen to me. This is a 25 years he's been doing this. He would get on the phone. Sunday school started at 9.30. By 9.45, 9.50, he was downstairs. He would call every senior that wasn't in Sunday school and wake them up every week. He had every, I guarantee you right now, Jim Nash can tell you the number of every person on the roll in the senior department. And he just goes in there and, and dials them, sits in the church office and calls them. I'll tell you what else he did. If a kid would miss two or three weeks in a row, Jim would go to their house. He would pick up some other seniors, right? And he'd go to their house at 7 o'clock in the morning and start banging on the door. Said, just want to make sure you're up in plenty of time to be in Sunday school. And I like a guy like that. I want to tell you, there will be a lot of people that stay by the stuff in the church because of people like the Dave Irbys and the Howard Cleavers. And oh, by the way, for those of you who are senior adults, the J.P. McDaniels who taught in preschool until he was too feeble to do it, who raised many of the children that have come out of this church. When J.P. McDaniel died, 
I went in his bedroom. You know what was in his bedroom? School pictures of over 300 children he had taught in preschool, taped all over the mirror of his dresser. He never forgot the kids that he invested in. I will never forget walking to the preschool area one day and at 72 years of age seeing J.P. McDaniel on his knees playing with children. Now, when did we think that God said we could retire? When I would see that man hobble into church and wonder if he could even walk across a flat floor without tripping up, but he had been working in the preschool area. My fellow worker, my fellow soldier, a soldier defends the faith. With opportunity comes opposition. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 1.18 says, wage the good warfare. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, you're a messenger. He was the messenger of the church at Philippi. And by the way, a good Christian is a good church member. They're not opposed to each other. They're the same. If you're a good Christian, you're also a good, faithful church member. And Paphroditus was a good church member. One who ministered to my need. He cared for him in prison. The word minister pertains to public service. It was used of ministry in the temple. It was a word in which we get our word liturgy. Pentecost said, Here are saints to be taught. No one cares. Here are wounded hearts to be bound up. No one cares. Here are men to be reached for Christ. No one cares. Here are children to be taught and trained. And no one cares. Why? No one cares. He came to minister. Verse 30 says he came close to death. He risked his life. That was a gambler's term. Many threw the dice and put everything on the line to try to help Paul. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Acts 21 and verse 13, I am ready not only to be bound but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The reason that Paul loved Epaphroditus is because Epaphroditus also had a kindred spirit. Let me give you three quick statements. Paul was an example of selfless living for Christ. Paul was an example of selfless living for Christ. Timothy was an example of service for Christ. Timothy was an example of service for Christ. Epaphroditus was an example of suffering for Christ. Selfless living, service, and suffering. The story is told of Raphael who was painting his frescoes in the Vatican. And two cardinals came by and saw the frescoes that he was painting. And they rebuked Raphael because they said the face of Paul was, was too red. And they wanted him to change it. And Raphael said to these two cardinals, he blushes 
to see in what hands the church has fallen. Let's pray together. Let me ask you tonight, what are you doing and what should you be doing? What are you doing and what can you do? You see, if I'm going to be a fellow soldier and a fellow worker and one who ministers to needs, then I'm going to be a, a person that God can use. But if I'm, I'm not a soldier and I'm not a worker and I'm not interested in ministering to needs of others, then I'm going to limit how much God can actually use me. God's not interested in any of us being stars. He's not interested in any of us being famous. Or celebrities the ground's level at the foot of the cross the responsibilities for ministry fall on all of us to use what God has given us for his glory if God has given you health to be here then God has given you time to serve and to do something not to just sit and soak but to be a servant. Are you letting God right now use you to the maximum of your potential to be used? Or do there need to be some adjustments in your schedule and your time and your priorities so that you can do the things that matter and not get so caught up in the things that won't matter? five, ten years from now? Are you investing your time and your energy in eternal things or in temporary things? Is there an area that you've dropped out of that you need to get back involved in? Is there something that you quit doing because you got busy with other things that now you need to say, you know what? It's time for me to get back to where I'm supposed to be and use what God's given me. Just draw a circle around yourself right now and just ask yourself the question. Am I a person that God can use? Am I letting God use me? Am I letting the Holy Spirit use my life to impact others' lives. We have a shortage of people who can work and serve, and so some are overworked and some are underworked. But if we'd all carry our own load like we're supposed to, nobody would be stressed beyond limits. But all of us have to do our part your name's not ever going to appear in the Bible but your name is written in the Lamb's book of life 
And as a saved person, Jesus said, if you want to be great, be a servant. Don't quit. I remember hearing Vance Havner say when he was 75 years old, somebody asked him when he was going to retire. He said, I'm not going to retire. I'm just going to refire. You know, I look at Billy Graham's life, and I think he's got every reason in the world to sit in his rocking chair in Montreat and never preach again. He's got Parkinson's. He's got prostate cancer. He's got all kinds of things. Boy, he is determined to preach these two crusades this year. He is committed to preaching until God takes him home. And if he can do it with his health problems, what can we do with our health problems? If he can continue to fulfill his role, what can we do to fulfill our role? So I'm going to ask Mark and the praise team to sing, and the altar's open. If you need to come, we'll just take just a moment here before the end and have a time to tell the Lord where we are and what we need to do. So while they're singing... I just ask you to respond however God's told you to respond a grain of wheat that falls to the earth and dies to live anew. All my plans and earthly desires, I lay them down to follow you.
matter where we are in your economy. Help us to be good stewards of the mysteries of God and of the gifts that you've given us and of the breath of life that you've invested in us. Lord, I, I don't want to rust out. I want to burn out for you. I, I want to finish climbing. Whether I'm 51 or 71. I still want to believe that there is a mountain that can be taken.